your brain has something like 90 billion neurons. Nerve cells. You're supposed to be impressed and awed by this, right? I don't know about you, but it's, it just sounds like a number to me. I mean, if you told me there was 90 billion dollars in my skull, that, that's a big number, and I can, I can sort of uh, wrap my mind around that. Neurons are so tiny. What if I told you that each neuron connects with thousands of other neurons, giving trillions and trillions of connections? As many connections in a single cubic centimeter of brain tissue as there are stars in the Milky Way, according to one neuroscientist. And what's in that seething center of superconnected entanglement? You. Today on The Soul of Life, we're going to talk about Albert Einstein's vision for something no one else could see. He was, at that point, unafraid to say, hey, I was wrong last week. And you know what? I was wrong the week before, but I'm going to try this. We'll talk about quantum physics. Quantum entanglement is what knits together space-time. And we'll talk about what could be the very horizon of your being. Of course, we don't really know if things like quantum entanglement have anything to do with the hyper-network of electroactivity that gives rise to your consciousness, or whether it might one day confirm that human love and connection is in fact star-crossed and our neurons somehow are entangled with those we are parted from the way many mystical religions believe, or frankly how Luke and Obi-Wan use the Force in Star Wars. We really don't know. And, and I hope you don't think I'm totally nuts here. I'm only sharing what I've begun to hear, cautiously reported from a handful of scientists that study the brain and how they are, kind of like Einstein did actually, daring to make some fascinating leaps into quantum physics because both fields, neuroscience and quantum physics, are fields that are obsessed with studying the flow of energy. And they're trying to imagine dimensions beyond our direct perception that nonetheless may underpin our very existence. One of the strangest things is called entanglement. If you prepare two photons, two particles of light, so that one has spin up and one has spin down, because you've prepared them that way, and then the two photons separate, they could be on opposite sides of the universe. Now, again, you don't know which one is spin up and which is spin down. It's completely uncertain. Once you make a measurement of one, let's say Alice is on one side of the universe. If Alice measures that her photon spin is up, it automatically forces Bob's spin on the other side of the universe to be spin down. This episode is about you, your existence. And it's also about existence itself. It gets very weird. Not my conversation with award-winning science writer Ron Cowan. He's not weird. He's pretty cool. We discuss his amazing book, Gravity Century, from Einstein's eclipse to images of black holes, which, by the way, has nothing to do with psychology or existentialist philosophy. That's, that's all me. Gravity Century by Ron Cowan was named one of the best science books of 2020 by NPR's Ira Flato. And Ron has a gift for making complexities of quantum physics and technology clear and exciting, and I think you'll appreciate that. It's very cool to talk with Ron. But existence, existence is weird. This will be my first in a series of episodes, actually, I'm planning to do on the soul of life related to quantum physics, the brain, and our existence. Today we do Einstein. We'll only glance on the existential and bizarre stuff, the interpretations of quantum foundations right now, but I promise to dive into that with others on the show soon. Some of you will be familiar with, no doubt you'll know about the famous Schrodinger's cat equations, so-called, where mathematics of quantum theory led to his eerie spectacle, and he chose to say a cat, could be in a particular sort of quantum state in which it was neither dead nor alive, depending on if you looked at it. So let me say that again. 
the math says you look at the cat, it's alive. You don't observe it, and the cat doesn't exist. You know, this is not metaphysical mumbo jumbo. This is coming from one of the most highly disciplined and rigorous scientific fields. The math was saying this. And it confuses physicists and mathematicians who do this all day. But this is what they're coming up with. In 1982, artist Frederick Hart created a masterpiece sculpture tympanum that arches above the main entrance to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. To me, it's, it's utterly breathtaking, and I'm riveted to it each time I visit. Half-formed figures of men and women emerging from the void. It's called Ex Nihilo. Ex Nihilo. That's the Latin for out of nothing, a reference to the Genesis story of creation. The sheer audacity of matter, one moment to exist, and another moment not exist? All depending on whether you're looking at it or not? I don't think we have the words for this yet. Ex nihilo? Quantum mechanics? Einstein called it spooky. I call it hope. If we didn't have a black hole at the center of our galaxy, maybe we wouldn't be in our galaxy. Welcome to episode 7 of The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is Ex Nihilo Entanglement. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. My guest today is Ron Cowan. He's an award-winning science writer who has a passion for making complex topics in astronomy and physics and the history of tech very clear and exciting. And not only that, but visceral, kind of um, just helps people kind of get their minds around topics that he writes about that may be quite complicated and abstract. He's contributed dozens of articles to magazines and newspapers, including National Geographic, Nature, The New York Times, Science, Science News, Scientific American, and U.S. News and World Report. He's received many honors, too many to list here as a writer, but he has won the American Institute of Physics Excellence in Science Writing Award and three national awards from the American Astronomical Society. And recently, Ira Flato on NPR's Science Friday show uh, named his his book Gravity Century one of the best summer books summer science books of 2020. It's a real honor to have Ron Cowan with us today. Thanks for having me, Keith. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome, uh, Ron. I, I'm really you know pleased to have you to talk about your your book Gravity Century. Can you talk about what this what the significance is of Gravity Century? Well, I mean, it's, it's really about um, how Einstein's theory of gravity came to be tested and this bizarre theory ultimately embraced. And, we're, and over the last 100 years, it's progressed from just a theory to uh, people with a giant telescope or array of telescopes taking an image of a black hole, which is something that Einstein's theory of gravity predicts. But um, what's so fascinating about the theory, I mean, it's in, in a way, it's really a, a, a new way to look at the universe because um, uh, I mean, Einstein erased the idea of gravity as a force and refuted long held ideas that space and time were just kind of silent spectators he is saying that space time is as malleable as putty, that uh, Earth is not orbiting around the sun because of a pull, because of a force, but because space time is curved, because mass curves space time, and it's, it's following this curved path. It's all about geometry. So, a new way of looking at the universe. Really 
uh, Einstein's work upended conventional ways of looking and thinking about how matter behaved, how what forces mm -hmm. were affecting our lives. And in fact, this really does apply to our daily lives. Um, Gravity's century, you talk about the century. Um, can you speak about the significance of the 100 years since Einstein first postulated about sure. uh, his ideas about gravity? Yeah. And I mean, Einstein uh, developed his theory, his full theory at the end of 1915. But it wasn't until four years later that uh, his theory had this really critical test. Because uh, Einstein, again, said that mass curves space-time. And he realized that when stars are near the sun, because the sun is heavy, the path of starlight is going to be different. And it's going to look to an observer like the stars have changed position slightly. Mm -hmm. um, they're not where they would be when the sun is away. But how are you supposed to see the stars when the brilliant sun is in the way? Well, you can during a solar eclipse. So in May 1919, there was, in fact, one of the longest eclipses of the 20th century. And it confirmed Einstein's theory uh, in a really important way. And the public really embraced the theory. There were headlines over the all over the world. Uh, stars askew in the heavens, the New York Times wrote. So people embraced it, the public did. And, but it, it's really taken 100 years to bring the theory and, and it's, all its consequences to some kind of maturation right. to, the, to the point where we can have this array of telescopes with an effective diameter as large as Earth, because that's what you need, to look at the center of a black hole um, millions of light years distant. Right. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of science writing. I, I, it's, it's one of my, one of my hobbies. I, uh, you know, people like Brian Greene or Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, and, and I appreciate their writing, but what I liked about your writing, Ron, is, is it's uh, storytelling. And in your journalist, you've been a science writer your entire career. So to me, the stories, because it, some of the, I mean, this stuff is hard to understand for people who spend their day all day, every day, studying this it, 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 mm -hmm. it can be very it is very complicated and very complex and very confusing and uh, we, the stories really came to life about Einstein and his work and that brought me along I really want to say thanks to you for that because it really um, sort of brought to life these stories for example Einstein uh, I, I really never knew this that he he was really out of tune with mathematics as a student he was not a great student he skipped many of his classes Professors disliked him, and he didn't get a job in academics, I think you say, until his father kind of wrote a letter um, pleading to give him a chance because he had such a bad reputation as a student. So yeah, um, he even, you mentioned that he, he really didn't have any regard or understanding of uh, some of the mathematics that were critical uh, underpinning his breathtaking innovations, uh, uh, differential geometry, for example. So mm -hmm. what changed about his situation? What what clicked when and, and made him go from this kind of an outsider loner character to somebody that was widely accepted as brilliant. Mm -hmm. And and it did take a while for that to happen. I will say that, you know, in 1915, even um, when he developed his full theory of gravity, it, it took a while and it took a while actually to get the message out because it was world war one it was not easy for people in England and um, everybody who was at war with Germany to even get the journal articles. But I think what happened was, first of all, when he got that job at the patent office, you know, he was developing work that was revolutionary, uh, like the theory of special relativity, which holds that light has the same speed, no matter how fast you go. You know, if, if, if you see a train going five miles per hour and you're in a train going the same speed, you look across and you don't see any difference. It's like they're, mm -hmm. uh, they're going together, but not for light or any very high speed um, uh, means of transportation. The speed, if I'm going close to the speed of light, I still see a light beam passing me by at the speed of light. 
what I'm trying to say is that if he had, this is what I think, if he had a profis, regular professorial job at a, at a university, mm. you know, if he was studying with other people near other people, they would have, and they did it anyway, scoff at some of his work. In the patent office, he had quiet time when he finished his patent work. Um, he would open a, a, a different drawer where he had his, his own work and he quietly developed it. And that mm. was how he worked. And I would say that there were several theories. He had one uh, year, 1905, called the, some people call it the miracle year. We had three phenomenal papers on special relativity, quantum theory, and one other topic. <clears throat> and as those theories were embraced, I think he had a lot, people had a lot more respect for him by 10 years later uh, when he developed his theory of, of gravity. Right. But he also knew to reach out to his friends. Mm. with the math you know he, he was very good in math he just didn't think that the mathematics of differential geometry of curved space of curved surfaces was needed for him in his work so he didn't bother trying to understand it mm. when he needed it he realized it and he reached out to his friend uh, uh michael besso and uh michael grossman so he had to overcome a, a lot of uh you know daily life the gr- like the grind that he that all of us live in. He was doing his job, earning, trying to earn a living, and mm-hmm. um, when he, it sounds like it made a difference that, that he knew what he didn't know, but he also knew that he had some ability and interest. He followed his interests and he followed his passion. He followed his hunches, That's and he right. didn't. He really didn't let these distractions or even conventions of other people's thinking slow him down or stop him. But when he needed to, he collaborated. Right. And he really did have fewer distractions being at the patent office and he, he could do his work and then he had time left over at, at his, uh, at his desk to do his own work. Um, And I think that would end up being a blessing for him rather than feeling like, Oh, I'm a failure because I'm not at a university. It was perhaps the perfect job for him at at the right time. Right. Right. That's amazing. Um, You you mentioned his four landmark, lectures in 1914 as a, a zigzag of creative thought. I think some people could hear that depending on who you are. You might hear the zigzag of creative thought. You might think of the Grateful Dead or, or you know, uh-huh. uh, different ways to get zigzags of creative thought. But this obviously was, was something quite different. This was a, a, a stroke of genius, in fact. Can you describe, mm-hmm. I mean, he had to overcome these distractions. He had the criticism of, his, of the culture of academic physics, the very mm-hmm. competitive culture. And the turmoil yeah. in his daily life, he had an affair with one of his cousins. He said right. his wife is like an employee he can't fire. <laughs> so he wasn't, he, he didn't have maybe a, uh, a great uh, or steady sort of home life. That's um, true. Not to mention the violence between countries. He'd renounce his German citizenship. That's right. And then uh, despite being of Jewish heritage, taught in the Prussian Academy of Physics. Mm-hmm. Um, life in Germany was looking grim starting to look very grim for jews right i mean he was the middle of world war one um it was uh um, food was scarce and um even in his offices uh in i think it was 1914 um someone was developing uh, a poison gas to fight against uh Mm. british and the americans and there was an explosion and uh someone was killed uh, now, he, Einstein wasn't in his office and his own office was fine. But yeah, I mean, there was an explosion, you know, like in the same building. So, mm, yeah. yeah, there were a lot of stressors. And um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you say more about the, the 1914 lecture series? Um, sure. that, this zigzag of creative thought. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it, it was in 1915. 1915. And it, was in, and it was in November. And I think one of the, the things that was going on that spurred him was that in 1914, he had given uh, talks uh, about his still developing work of gravity, including at the University of Göttingen, where a very uh, famous mathematician, David Hilbert, uh, resided. And Hilbert was very taken with Einstein's developing theory and started to make progress on his own. And in fact, to the point where some people, friends of Einstein, I guess, were warning him, you know, Hilbert's uh, on your tail. 
And Einstein was determined, you know, this is my theory. I am, you know, I'm not going to let anybody take it away from me. And I think that was part of uh, just prompting him or uh, maybe getting more adrenaline to do the work. But uh, so in, in, in 1915, November, he gave once a week uh, uh, four lectures to the Prussian Academy. And he was actually going back and forth, rejecting ideas that he thought didn't, weren't panning out from 1912, 1913, and then embracing them again. Uh, right. I mean, he gave his first talk on November 4th. And then within days, he realized that that work was not correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he gave a second talk on November 11th, rejecting the, that first presentation, introducing a new equation. On November 18th, the third lecture, uh, he derived the, the proper advance of Mercury's orbit from his new equation because Mercury's orbit around the sun precesses a little bit, very slowly, like a, like a slowly spinning top does. And he, for the first time, could explain that precession. Um, and it turns out that, that in the third lecture, the equations were not quite right, but they, he didn't know that then, but they, they were good enough to explain the precession. Mm. But then finally on November 25th, I mean, he rejected the equations from his first two talks and finally got the right solution and the right equations. Um, yeah, it attests to his ability to concentrate, to work fast. Um, he was at that point unafraid to mm. say, hey, I was wrong last week. Right. And you know what? I was wrong the week before. And do it, try doing this. it in, in public, doing it in public with a, a really kind of an all right. eyes on him. Even right. In, and at the again, level. Hilbert, you know, on his tail, you know, I don't want Hilbert to uh, take my theory and run with it. All of right. that. Right. Um, just all together. I can just imagine the adrenaline. Yeah. And, the and World War I still, of course, <laughs> raging. Right. You know. Right. All these things. And, and, and the, the, the sense of, of uh, not letting mistakes be failures. There, there, there. It's something about learning and 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 seeing them as something to go go on, build onto. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, I, I want to make sort of a cross discipline discipline leap here into into psychology. Um, mm-hmm. In the last few years, I've been hearing some um, scientists uh, and psychologists talk about this idea that the brain. It is really our experience of our awareness, right? Our awareness of awareness, which we would define as consciousness, um, can be thought of as a quantum uh, effect or it arises out of quantum processes. So in other words, they're saying very cautiously, by the way, they don't want this to sound very woo-woo or kind of like you know, metaphysical type of thing, but that actually um, because the brain has a pretty singular job, which is to move electrical current around very, very efficiently, that the flow of energy, which is not a new age term, energy, right? And when you speak about energy, it's literally how our life exists. It's the flow of energy and how we're talking and having this conversation is the flow of energy uh, transmitted through, you know, my, my vocal cords shaking air and transmitting that. And so it's electrical activity and electrochemical activity, which is a Newtonian, um, you know, we are Newtonian. We're, we have lot, we're a large object and our, our molecules and DNA are large objects, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and follow Newtonian physics, and yet the complexity of the, those Newtonian objects may give rise to this quantum effect. In other words, that our brain actually has this quantum capacity. Have you heard any of that? It's very compelling to me to think about it. Um, it, it what does that sound like to you? Um, well, what I will say is that, I mean, on quantum theory, quantum mechanics, you know, does... Uh, at the subatomic level really explain all phenomenon. Um, and, you know, I know that in quantum theory, uh, until you measure the state of a system, like whether an electron spin is up or down, the electron has, it, it's in a combination of both up and down. It's not right. one or the other. And when you make right. a measurement, you suddenly the electron spin snaps into one state or right. the other. And there's this kind of choice of uncertainty. I don't know if that feeds into this stuff or not, but 
but uh, biochemistry, you know, really is, can be explained by, by quantum theory. Um, and uh, we're still trying to make progress uh, in understanding that. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's possible. It's, I right. yeah. don't know more than that. Yeah, no, that's very fair. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, just, it's just sort of a flight of fancy of thought at this point. But, but to, for me as a clinician and as somebody who, who talks with people about possibility and potential, uh, Daniel's, Dr. Daniel Siegel, is, who's this, uh, who really single-handedly created what we call the field of interpersonal neurobiology. So not just neurobiology, which is what happens inside of our bodies and minds, but what happens between two minds, uh, the interpersonal neurobiology. So he has really kind of created that field in during in the course of his lifetime of work. And um, for him to you know, just to begin speaking about this plane of awareness, uh, or sorry, the plane of possibility, rather, that there are at, at all moments in our, our life, every single moment, every single thought we have, every heartbeat we have, there is a, um, a plane of possibility where there's vir- virtually infinite possible uh, outcomes can happen. And mm-hmm. of course, um, things very quickly move into a plane of certainty and right. and ob- like you're speaking about the quantum state moving into a either one or a, I, f- I forget how you right. say only it. when you make a measurement and that's actually why quantum computing or quantum computer will be so powerful when it's fully developed because in ordinary classical computers you have a gate that is either on or off and that's it but in a quantum computer, you will have on and off or one and zero, uh, as well as both at the same time. And that enables a quantum computer to solve, work in parallel and just solve incredibly complex problems that n- not even the fastest supercomputer now can, can solve. Right. It's, it's so really mind-blowing, <laughs> the, yes. the amount of computational power that it that it. Uh, may one day have that we're, we yes. may think of our time now in the dark ages where we carry around these supercomputers in our pockets. That's right. But that's really that's right. just like child's play compared to uh, super, uh, quantum computers. Yep. Um, be- before we leave the topic of your book, because I want to, I, I want to okay. give you the chance to, um, to, to, to drill down into this just a little bit more. Um, Einstein's revolutionary insight, um, which you, you mentioned the eclipse proved uh, was that gravity and space-time curvature are the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I just want to have a full stop there for the average human. What, what in the world does that really mean? Gravity and space-time curvature are the same thing. Right. Well, um, he, Einstein had two really important thought experiments. And, and actually, it harks back to Gedanken experiments in German, I guess. Um, and the first one really harks back to the time of Galileo. Galileo said, if you drop two objects from a tower, um, and if you don't have air resistance, if one of them is a lead brick and the other one is a feather, they're going to drop, they're going to accelerate downwards at the same rate. And Einstein realized that that was a much more important concept than people thought. Hmm. Um, that again, any object. So the first in his thought, first thought experiment, he, and both of them involve elevators. He realized, or he said that um, if you have an elevator in outer space away from earth's gravity and all gravity, and it was just being hoisted upwards at a constant acceleration of 9.8 meters per second squared, you cannot, that you will be, the people in that elevator will feel, you know, gripped to the ground as this is going upwards. They cannot differentiate. No one can differentiate that from just standing on the ground on earth now, no elevator and, and feeling the pull of gravity. They were absolutely the same. He called it the principle of equivalence. Okay. So he said, again, an accelerating elevator upwards, same as gravity. Okay. The second experiment that I think is important that he thought about, again, Gedanken experiment. He says, okay, we're in this elevator, right? Uh, Again, away from gravity, being hoisted up at that acceleration rate. Okay, someone has drilled a hole on one side of the elevator, some outsider, and they have uh, 
inserted a, a focused beam of light to go through that hole. Okay, the outside observer, he's not in the elevator. He just sees that light go in a straight line across to the other side. Fine, that's what you'd expect. Someone in the elevator, they're going upwards, and they don't realize that if it's a constant acceleration. They see, because the elevator has gone upwards a little bit by the time the light beam has traveled across the width of the elevator, they see that light beam going downwards, curving downwards. Okay, but if gravity is the same thing as an accelerating elevator, that means that gravity itself can somehow curve space-time, curve the path of light. That was what Einstein realized. And from that, uh, the idea that gravity is like geometry flows, the fact that uh, time itself is slower in a gravitational field than up in space where there's very little gravity. Right. All this stuff comes from that. But that's, he had these thought experiments um, yeah. and in his ability to concentrate uh, and think about that. So right. that's, yeah. And, and can you say something about the, that, the idea that space is the same as time? Am, am I getting that right? It's space time. It's space and time kind of go together as, as a fourth dimensional entity called space-time. And what someone later, John Archibald Wheeler, liked to say is that mass tells space-time how to curve, and in turn, space-time tells mass how to move. Because what I, maybe I didn't say is that objects try to move always on the straightest line possible. But if the space-time you have to travel through is curved, that straightest line is actually a curved path. Right. Um, and again, this goes back to Earth orbiting the sun. The space-time is curved. Earth wants to follow the, the straightest path, but that straightest path is curved because of the sun, because the sun is so much heavier than Earth and has curved the space-time around it. You mentioned the, the fourth dimension, that this is really considered the fourth dimension. And, and right. I, I, I want to comment on that because it sounds like something we'd see in the Twilight Zone, right? It's, it's, it sounds like, uh -huh. a, like a sci-fi thing, but it's right. actually, and this, and this is uh, why I asked and why I wanted to bring the topic up of how the mind works and how consciousness arises, that in fact, you know, we, we, ex there, it, we exist in this fourth dimension. It's not as if some, is some like, um, uh, and you'll have to correct me if I'm, you know, tell me if I'm getting this right, but it's not this some out there thing that, you know, it, it's actually fundamental to our very existence. Right, right, that, that it's space-time. And in fact, space, the idea of space-time is not just with gravity. It goes back to his uh, special theory of, of relativity because it turns out, and if you draw some figures, it's not hard to see that if light is a constant, irrespective of um, how fast you're moving. It turns out that space and time have to contract or expand, and they, you have to think of it as space-time. And, uh, and people talk about space-time diagrams. Um, so, and, and why it's, it's four dimensions, because space is length, width, height, that's three, and time is the fourth. I'm going to make this reference um, again, because sort of to, to broaden this for, for kind of the general audience and to make, make this really relevant. I mean, people oftentimes, I think, glaze over uh, when they hear people talk about quantum physics, they think it's some abstract thing. Even Einstein um, used the word spooky to describe the action. Quantum uh, theory. Qu quantum theory, the spooky, spooky action at a distance. Um, yes, he did. One of the strangest things um, about quantum theory, aside from the uncertainty principle, and yes, it can be in two states at once, is something related called entanglement. If you prepare two photons, two particles of light, um, and you prepare them so that actually photons can also have a spin. Um, if you just know that one has spin up and one has spin down because you've prepared them that way. And then the two photons separate. They could be on opposite sides of the universe. Now, again, you don't know which one is spin up and which is spin down. It's completely uncertain, right? Once you make a measurement of one, let's call, let's say Alice is on one side of the universe. If Alice measures that her photon spin is up, it automatically forces Bob's spin on the other side of the universe to be spin down. 
because that's you spooky pre- action at a distance. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And um, entanglement is something that actually figures in um, uh, lots of important things, including making our cybersecurity unhackable right. um, in, right. in the future when right. we, when we really implement that. So it's not intuitive, which makes it's not intuitive, even, you know, even for physicists. So it's, right. it's difficult. Right. Let me mention one other thing about entanglement that relates to Einstein's um, theory. So people, again, in just with mathematics, they have found that if you entangle a whole bunch of particles on a, surface on an imaginary surface and then you start to disentangle them they've they've looked inside the volume that's enclosed by that surface and it starts to look like space-time starts to unravel and it looks like somehow entanglement quantum entanglement is connecting space-time uh keeping it together Mm. and um you can also start to derive Einstein's equations of the general equations of his general theory of relativity from entanglement. But the fact that entanglement in quantum is somehow related to the connectiveness of space time is uh, I think pretty neat. It's fascinating. And I don't want to conflate the science that, that is, that is obviously at an academic level here with, with some conventional speculation that people have made, Mm -hmm. but the, the the idea that um, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> the the idea that <laughs> that um, one person people report this all the time, Ron. You probably have experiences, or at least have heard of people having these experiences where you know I was just about to call you. I was thinking, I was just thinking about you, and you called me. I mean, I we're we're not going to even say that this has any possible relation to the scientific exploration of quantum entanglement, but. Um, there are what I want to mention for people to hear is that there are um, credible scientists who are beginning to at least be open to it. And, and I, I, I want to use Einstein as an example. He had an openness, um, uh, as you describe in your book, the openness to radical thoughts and allowed his mm-hmm. mind the freedom to, 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 to wonder and the courage to wonder and then the courage to find the mathematics to prove it uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder what, what's in your wildest speculation um, uh, of what quantum entanglement could mean uh, one day, let's say, I don't know, at the rate of our technology advancing in a thousand years, what, what are they going to be doing with quantum entanglement? You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. I don't know. Maybe, maybe possibly in some way, just under, just under, if quantum entanglement is what knits together space-time, um, I don't know exactly what they might do, but I think quite soon we're going to understand what go, what really goes on inside a black hole, because classically inside a black hole at the very center, I guess, everything shrinks to zero volume to the incredible gravity. But, you know, when, but that's where all the laws, laws of physics break down because we don't know what really happens. I think that looking at quantum entanglement on the surface that will it's like a hologram you look only at the surface and you can try to find out what goes on inside the volume that they're equivalent somehow i think we're just going to have a lot deeper understanding of the laws of physics of what goes on as i said inside black holes and a deeper understanding of the universe you know i don't beyond that that's a lot i don't know in detail but that's I, I think that's uh, on the horizon. Well, that's it's um, a, that's a safe answer, Ron. I was I was hoping you were going to say we we were going to be able to uh, travel to the farthest reaches of the universe and and discover other other life forms because it's actually not that far away. Somehow we'll find out that we are. Well, and of know, course we are looking around nearby stars and finding more and more evidence. And as you may know, just the other week 
they found, I believe it was phosphine, an interesting chemical mm. in the atmosphere of Venus, which is literally hot as hell, that is often a biosignature, a signature of some kind of living activity. So, um, you know, that's right. people are focused on Mars, and I think that makes sense, actually. But, um, but yeah, we are looking with bigger and bigger telescopes, and of course, the launch of the James Webb telescope with its much larger diameter uh, mirror than, um, than Hubble is going to look more deeply right. for uh, alien planets that might have life. My son and I were, were lucky enough to visit the Goddard Space Center um, because of a friend of ours that works at NASA. And we got mm-hmm. to peek through the window to see the James Webb when it was there for testing and uh, being, being built. So the James Webb uh, is, is going to be launched in 2021. And mm-hmm. um, a million miles away from Earth at, at the L2, Lagrange Point 2, kind of a stationary static point uh, where it can orbit with Earth around the sun, but it, it is going to be very close to the sun and have this huge uh, shield on it, right, from the sun's right. uh, rays. But um, yeah, how, well, we, we could talk about that, I guess, but I, I you know, um, it seems like there's, we're on the edge of so many more discoveries. We're learning so much more and more about what's out there. And uh, it's fascinating to me that it also uh, rings true, that it, be, that it also tells us about who we are as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that these insights, when we look at the furthest reaches of black holes, that we that there may be, or about the idea that st- space time is knit together. Just that idea is so so compelling as creatures ourselves that are biological and, and clearly knit together with these cells. We're cellular creatures. Um, it just makes sense to us that the universe would be also knit together in some way. Um, I kind of wonder, Ron, as somebody who studies black holes. Ultimately, this this conversation about Einstein and and, uh, relativity and quantum mechanics, it all comes down to black holes. And I wonder, um, how do you not get chronically depressed and go into a sort of comatose depression just studying about how, what goes on inside of a black hole, the way matter is, all matter is inescapably bound um, to to be destroyed and never come back. How do you you stay hopeful studying black holes? (laughs) Well, I, uh, of course, I write about black holes. You write about those them. that study, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Um, I, there's not a black hole near us, so we, we are in no danger. <laughs> and they're, 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 they're fascinating, and um, they're literally crucibles for understanding the universe. You know, I, mm. what I didn't say is quantum theory and gravity still have not been united into one theory. But because black holes have two things, extreme gravity and collapsing things to tiny, tiny volumes, which is the realm, subatomic realm, the realm of quantum theory, that's probably where we're going to, if we understand black holes, we're going to understand how to unite unite these two theories. But the fact that they exist, uh, um, actually, it it could be a good thing. Um, we believe that a black hole uh, lies, a mass, very massive black hole lies at the center of probably every large galaxy. And it may have helped the galaxies form and accrete matter and shape the galaxies. And there's even kind of a feedback between um, the region around black holes can actually have a wind that blows out matter. And then, but the black hole is pulling matter. It may even regulate, we believe, black holes at the center of galaxies regulate the growth of those galaxies. Maybe if we didn't have a black hole at the center of a galaxy, maybe we wouldn't be in our galaxy. So I don't think of it as a negative. I think of it as positive and fascinating. And um, uh, it really is compelling. Compelling. It really is compelling. And, And I think the more we know about these mysteries, the more we, the more we lean into these mysteries that, um, that in fact, like space is not empty at all. It's not, you know, you can, right. you know, there's an interesting book, um, Mary Roach writes about, I forget what it's called, uh, Packing for Mars is what it's called. And it's mm-hmm. a fa- fascinating book about what it's like, actually how hellish it is to live uh, if, if a human were to live in space for a period of time. And she chronicles the story, a lot of the stories that NASA really in his public relations uh, didn't care to tell the public about how nasty it is to live, uh, even right. to orbit uh, for a few days. And, in space mm-hmm. and what happens to the body. But 
um, you know, she talks about the, the psychological effects and the panic attacks that many astronauts have to prepare for when, um, you know, on the one side, looking at this a beautiful object and, and the spiritual experiences many of them describe having, looking at the earth, but then the panic and terror that they can feel um, looking the other way into the darkness uh, mm -hmm. in the void. And in fact, when we look at the, the world of the super tiny um, quantum world, uh, it's not empty at all. Right. It, in fact, um, in fact, according to quantum theory, the vacuum of space, right, is, is not empty. There are particles constantly, particles and antiparticles coming together and popping in and out of existence so that, in fact, this, the vacuum of space is actually seething with particles and antiparticles. And that isn't just a theory because that, that, that idea has been tested um, and, and is, is true. It's something called the Casimir effect, which I won't go into, but um, that, that has been shown to be true. It's actually a very busy place. And, and black holes, yes. fundamentally, black holes may be, and in fact, are the birthplace of stars, uh, potentially, and, and, and therefore uh, of, of, our, of our existence, given our dependence on on stars. To me, you know, to have that sort of hopeful uh, view, it, it, it's so comforting. We were, we were on vacation during, during the summer. We had a chance to, to see the meteor shower that happened um, back in August that was mm -hmm. just spectacular. And being able to see, I mean, people have described this uh, similar effect on just on our nervous system when you go into a forest, when you, when you are, I think in Japan, they call it forest bathing. Um, the the notable effect of just walking through a forest, a place where there is uh, life seething and all these activities, uh, natural activities of life, or just looking out into the universe, seeing the, the Milky Way or at a at a through a telescope. Um, I mean, to me at least, there is a overtone of uh, an emotional overtone of hope when we look back in time or when we look um, through time in geology here. Um, my son and I went, um, as, as some of my listeners will know, on a pretty big backpacking trip to the Grand Canyon, went down to the, to the bottom, up, up to the North Rim, and then back. So rim to rim to rim, 42 miles. And, uh, mm. you know, the geology that you can see going back in time, to me, is, is comforting to know that we are part of this larger fabric of space, time, and matter, and that it all matters, you know. <laughs> right, <laughs> it, it right, all matters. right. Um, even the, the cosmic background radiation to me is hopeful. Like this idea that this is, this stuff has been going on, the, early, the stuff that we can measure at the earliest um, points of time. Right. It's and that's again, because, right. Telescopes are in fact like time machines because, and it's because the speed of light, not only is it a constant, but it's a finite speed. So that if you look at a galaxy that is very, very distant, okay, it's taken, you're not seeing that galaxy as it looks now, that you're seeing the, how do you see anything from light? That light had to be emitted and it took a certain amount of travel time to see you, to see, sorry, to be detected right. by our to telescope on Earth. So we are seeing that galaxy as it was, not as it is. And right. the further back, the further the distant galaxy is, the further back in time we're looking. So in fact, when we're looking instead of the cosmic microwave background radiation, we're looking very close to the birth of the universe. And we think the universe is about, I think it's 13.8 billion years old. Right. And when we're looking at the first galaxies, right, we are seeing them as baby galaxies. Right. And, and right. I'll say one more thing that Einstein's theory of gravity comes into play in a particular way in that, because Right. Gravity or mass curves space time. Well, it turns out that a very big foreground galaxy um, can act like, as it's called, a gravitational lens and like a zoom lens and act to focus the light from that very distant galaxy um, so that you are able to see more details about that very distant galaxy than you normally would because you're looking at it through the lens, gravitational lens of this foreground galaxy. And the Hubble Space Telescope and their, their scientists 
have used that quite often to see details they wouldn't otherwise have seen about the early universe. Wow. Wow. And speaking of Hubble, so the, which reminds me of James Webb, um, which is uh, much, much larger and, and a different type of uh, telescope altogether. It's infrared. That's right. Um, why is that important? That, that in, in what, what are we going to expect to see the James Webb infrared um, mm-hmm. telescope bringing close to life? Um, similarly to, you know, the, 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 the Hubble brought these fantastic, I mean, enhanced images, obviously, but fantastic images, light images of galaxies and universes. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, all galaxies are fleeing away from each other because the universe is expanding and it's really expanding at a faster and faster rate. You can think of all of us as ants on an inflating balloon. So everything is, everything is moving away from every, everything else. And it turns out the more distant the galaxy, the faster it's receding. And when galaxies are receding, um, they're, the light they emit is shifted to the redder end of the electromagnetic spectrum. And infrared light is a longer wavelength than visible light. So if you want to look at the early universe, it is better to have an infrared telescope rather than a visible light uh, telescope. And I also have an interest in the history of recorded sound. And Mm. I think part of that, and I've written about it, but part of it for me is, you know, I, there's recordings from 120 years ago uh, or, or even a bit more than that. And there's something about, and they're on wax cylinders. They're grooves mm. on hollow wax cylinders. And there's something about that, about going back in time in that way that, that fascinates me personally. Yeah. I'm interested in, in, in your career as a writer, Ron. Um, you, you've been a science writer for, for, for it sounds like your entire career. Is that right? I mean, how did you get started and, and how did you end up doing science writing? Um, I was, yeah. Well, I, I was also always interested. I was on my high school newspaper, not writing about science. Um, and also at New York University, where I was an undergraduate, also on the student paper, writing about news. So I always had that interest. Um, but I, when I went to grad school, but I was studying physics, yeah. When I went to grad school at the University of Maryland, I was really struggling, um, especially at the point where you had to take the qualifying exam to do PhD research. Um, And I had a great advisor who had seen on my application to grad school in physics that I was very interested in science writing. And he he looked at me and said, if that's what you want to do, don't deny that. He actually said that. Mm. So I started to think about that. And while I was in grad school in physics, I applied and got a science writing internship at NIH. And I was maybe young and naive in a good way. I had an idea for a story for the style section of the Washington Post. Mm. I didn't know any better. I called them up and they said, yeah, that might be interesting. Um, and I started and I they accepted the article and I just, again, it wasn't science. It was feature stories about different things like uh, a daredevil uh, pilot who knew Amelia Earhart and mm-hmm. all, other things. But um, so that's how I got started in science writing. And then, yeah, after, after that internship, I did get different science writing jobs. Um, including one at Science News for 21 years, right? Right. Wrote about. Right. Well, it, it, it makes sense the way you describe that, Ron. Uh, when I hear your writing in Gravity Century, it, it, it does have that sense of um, keeping people's interest, maybe. Um, it certainly kept mine. I think everyone who's interested in science and, and, and in physics especially should get their hands on this book, Gravity Century. Um, Tell us about some of your latest latest writing. One of your articles is called Amino Acid Rock Music Helps Build New Proteins. Tell us about that. I am particularly interested for some reason in, in, in sound and the, the science of sound. And people in a lot of different disciplines have converted um, information like the vibrations of an atom to other things. They've converted that information into sound and sometimes when you listen you can learn things um about uh about 
for example, there's a way to detect cancer by converting different frequencies of, of, of cells into sound. You can hear things and discern things that will actually tell you potentially the answer quicker than just looking. Mm. So in this case, um, uh, a researcher converted information about the vibrations of uh, uh, the protein spike on COVID-19, the, the, uh, the viruses causes pandemic, and made it into kind of an orchestral piece. But it wasn't just for fun. You can learn information about that spike. And he's also taken other amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, and made music out of them, but to learn a fundamental things about those amino acids, about those proteins. And, and, that's, um, and, I, and that's in order to get computers, I imagine, to, pro, to get computers to learn how to make their own new music, their own proteins that, is, that can cure yes. coronavirus. That is true. Yes. Yes. And to find exactly uh, drugs that might stop or get uh, these, these sp- or interfere right. with these spikes right. that, that unfortunately attach to parts of our body. I enjoyed trying to put the narrative in, trying to put in the people in the story. And right. just very briefly, we didn't mention Arthur Eddington was the British astronomer who mm. led and planned the eclipse expeditions. And, you know, he began planning, he had to, during the war, uh, which was World War I. Again, the Germans were our enemy. That was, it was not a popular thing to even suggest this expedition. But also, Arthur Eddington was a pacifist, um, he almost went to jail uh, for his beliefs because he refused to uh, to join uh, the army. Um, and this was the expedition to measure the solar eclipse. The, of... Right, the bending of starlight. That's yeah. right. And, and there were actually two um, places. They uh, One group of people, including Ennington, went to an island off the west coast of Africa. And then his colleagues went to uh, an area in Brazil. Uh, not that far from the Amazon. Um, And it was actually very lucky that they went to two places because they had instrument problems. And uh, I think uh, the heat actually messed up one of the telescopes. Um, But Ennington, you know, there were heroes in this story Mm. and people who um, just were steadfast in their beliefs. Your, Your journey writing... Now, not only uh, speaking about Einstein's journey um, and his, his imperfections, really, his mistakes that he made, his, um, uh, he was kind of a jackass the way, he, the way you described him. Uh, I mean, you didn't describe him that way at all, but you know, the, if, if, if I'm reading between the lines, he wasn't a great guy to be around um, at all. And, and I wonder, did you feel at all any, any closer to him as a character um, writing about him? I did find those four weeks in November of 1915 really fascinating and to feel his struggle. But I had already admired Einstein and understood his imperfections. He was not a good father. He was uh, cruel to his first wife. It's my understanding that with his second wife that he had affairs and she tolerated it. Um, so I actually knew a lot of that stuff yeah. before. Yeah. Um, but I maybe, you know, I, I just that those struggles in November 1915 and David Hilbert trying to take away his work, I, I didn't know that so much. And I kind of felt that. Some affinity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. is it fundamentally human like we all are, obviously. And, and, uh, and to me, there's a story of hope and, and, and redemption in, in seeing seeing someone like Einstein go through that process, even, even through his imperfections. And um, right. tell people where, where they can find your work. Where, where can they find Ron sure. Cowan? Sure. Um, you can go to Ron Cowan, R-O-N-C-O-W-E-N.com. Uh, and the full name of my book is Gravity Century from Einstein's Eclipse, uh, Two Images of Black Holes. It's published by Harvard Press. You can get it on Amazon um, and in some bookstores, but definitely Amazon. Um, uh, so, but yeah, ronkowan.com is always my latest stuff. 
Great. Fantastic. And, and mm-hmm. any, any plans to do the Macarena? You mentioned it, I just have to say, like, <laughs> at least two or three times in the book. <laughs> yeah, that was, I was just word repetition, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no, I think it was great. No. I really, it, uh, it, it was endearing. It drew me in. Uh, no, as I said, I think I've done the Macarena just to bother uh, <laughs> my daughter, Julie. Um, uh, other than Keep that, doing it. No. Keep doing it. Right. Okay. <laughs> For those of you who have teenagers uh, that, 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 you know, keep doing it. <laughs> um, good to speak with you, Ron Cowan, and uh, really appreciate your work and, and sharing your time with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. Hans Riemann. Hans Riemann. Hans Riemann.